Good morning. Good morning. Hey, I'm Jamie Borchik. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Park. It's great to have you with us on this Sunday morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible or a device with you, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own one or you just don't have one and you want one, we'd love for you to take one with you. There's a table full of them out back. Grab one on your way out. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. Um, got a question for you this morning as we get started. Here's a question. Why are you here today? Why are you here today? You know, most of your uh, neighbors, most of your friends, maybe most of your family members, most of the people around us here in Chicago, most of the people around us in our world are not sitting in a church this morning. And you, you could have been anywhere else doing anything else too. You could be sleeping in right now at home. You could be uh, making brunch for your family. You could be uh, gearing up for the Bears game this afternoon. You could be uh, at a kid's sporting event. There's a ton of options of things you could have been doing this morning. And yet, of all the things that you could be doing, you are here. My question for you is why? Like, what's the purpose of you showing up here on a Sunday morning? What's the purpose of you uh, coming and being a part of a church community? What is church all about? What is church all about? That's the question today. Now, we've been studying the Apostle Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth. And uh, we've said over the last few weeks, this church in Corinth was a mess. These Christians in Corinth, they had problems with sex, with money, with power, and with each other. They were dealing with idolatry, immorality, and division. They were being shaped by their culture rather than being shaped by the cross. This church in Corinth, not unlike the big C church through most of history was a mess. It had a lot of problems. And the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians, to deal with that mess. And in our text today, in 1 Corinthians 3, one particular aspect of that mess comes into focus. And it was how those Christians viewed church. What was church all about? What is church all about? That's the central question Paul's addressing in our passage today. Now this morning, we're going to just walk through 1 Corinthians 3, verse by verse, to see what Paul has to say. So we're just going to take it one verse at a time and walk through the whole thing. That's where we're going. So you got your Bibles. You can follow along with me. We're going to start in verse 1. Here we go. Verse 1, Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. So last week, Phil Adams was here with us, and he walked us through chapter 2, where Paul divided all of humanity into two categories. So there are natural people, and there are spiritual people. Natural people are people who uh, do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. They have not yet believed in Jesus, and so they do not have the Holy Spirit, so therefore they are natural. And then spiritual people are people who have believed in Jesus, and therefore do have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, therefore they are spiritual. So natural and spiritual, two categories, right? And if you are a believer in Christ, which category do you fall into? Spiritual. But here in verse 1, Paul throws at us another category, a new category. He says these folks in Corinth, they're not natural. He, he refers to them as brothers. He, he says they are in Christ. So these, they're not natural. They are Christians. They have believed in Jesus. They are Christians. And yet, they're not quite spiritual, He says, I can't call you spiritual. You're you're not there. You're not living like Christians. 
And so Paul calls these people, he introduces a new category, he says, you're people of the flesh. People of the flesh. You're people controlled not by the Holy Spirit, but you're controlled by your flesh, by your, your own sinful desires, by, by your physical bodies. You're controlled by you, not by the Spirit. Now here in verse 1, Paul's speaking in the past tense. He's, he's looking backward. And he's referencing about five years earlier when he was living in Corinth and he was ministering with these people. And he says that back then he couldn't yet call them spiritual because at that time they were just infants in Christ. They were brand new baby Christians. Now verse 2 says, Back then I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. Now here in our church, right here, uh, if you haven't noticed, we have quite a few babies. Right? Like we're practically outnumbered by children. Uh, the, I don't know if you, if you know this either, but the very first command God gives in the whole Bible is be fruitful and multiply. And that's one we have nailed. We've got that one down. We know how to do that, okay? So we got a lot of babies. Uh, but for some of you who maybe are, are more unfamiliar with this having children thing, with this babies thing, uh, I'm not going to walk through the whole how it happens today. We'll get to that in a couple weeks. That's coming in 1 Corinthians. Don't worry. But what you should know today is that you don't feed steak to a newborn. You don't feed steak to a newborn. Infants take milk. They don't take meat. And when you're a baby, milk is the right diet. That's what babies eat. That's what they drink. That's how they survive. But if you get to being 5 or 6 or 10 or 20 or 40 or 60, if you get a few years down the road and you're still only drinking milk, well, then we got a little bit of a problem, right? And that's what's going on here. See, Paul's writing this letter five years down the road. And these baby Christians in Corinth, they're still baby Christians in Corinth. They haven't grown up at all. They haven't matured. They're still drinking milk. They're still of the flesh. And then Paul provides some evidence for this accusation he's throwing at them. Verse 3, he says, For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So back in chapter 1, a few weeks ago, we talked about how the city of Corinth was all about status. And the way you would acquire status was you would attach yourself to someone who had it. And the city was filled with popular talk personalities. You can think podcast hosts or YouTube personalities, right? They're, they're these orators who would deliver speeches in public. And people would latch on to their favorite celebrity speakers like you and I might latch on to a football team. They'd celebrate their team. They'd wear their team gear. They'd rep their team wherever they went. And they'd try to tear down other teams in order to make their team look better. That's how the culture in Corinth worked. It was this giant status factory built around popular per personalities. And these Christians, these people who are supposed to be following Jesus, supposed to be people of the Spirit, what they were doing is they were just building their own status factories within the church. They were latching onto their favorite preachers and saying, hey, I'm team Apollos, I'm team Paul. They were forming teams and they're yelling at each other across the stadium and then they ended up in the parking lot after service throwing blows at each other. And that's one of the key reasons that Paul calls them spiritual babies. 
Now, do you know the main thing that characterizes infants and babies? It's not the cuteness. It's not the crying. It's not the poopy diapers. It's the outright selfishness. For real. Like, babies are incredibly selfish. Babies do not think about anyone other than themselves. Right? They'll make a a huge mess and give no thought to who's going to clean that thing up. They'll poop all over your house and they expect you to wipe that stuff up. They'll cry all night long and keep you from sleeping and they don't give a rip about you. Right? Like babies are not thinking about you. They're only thinking about me. For a baby, life is all about me. And for the Corinthian Christians, life and church were all about me. It's all about me. They treated church as a means of social advancement. They were in it for the connections and the status. They were in it for themselves. It's all about me. And so often today, we're in it. It's all about me. We're in it for ourselves, just like that. Just like these spiritual babies, we make church all about me. Let me give you a few examples of how this plays out. In the church in America today, we have a phenomenon known as church shopping. Maybe you've heard of it. We treat church like we treat our internet provider. So as long as I'm getting a good deal, I'll stay. But if I find a better deal someplace else, if I can get a better value elsewhere, well then I'm out. I'll go, I'll go get the better value. So if the preaching isn't worthy of a TED talk, if the music doesn't make me feel like I'm at a rock concert, if the kids ministry doesn't feel like summer camp, if the people aren't at least my social equals who can boost my status to some degree, well, then I'm out. I'll go somewhere else. I'll find a better church with better people and better programs and a better pastor. I'll go someplace else. Or in church today, we talk about going to church in order to get fed. And if you used that term before, I'm going to get fed. Like we are kids in school and church is our spiritual cafeteria. You don't go there to give anything. You just go to get something. You don't show up to serve. You show up in order to be served. And if you don't like what's being served in any local particular cafeteria in your community, well, then you can go on the internet and you can find all kinds of celebrity pastors who who are happy to fill you up for free or maybe for a small donation. But church exists in order to meet my needs. That's the point. Or we can look at the last few years and the rampant division and polarization that has just ravaged the church. Christians have canceled each other over who they voted for or, or over whether or not they're wearing a mask or uh, what position they've taken on a particular social issue or a slew of other things. Like babies, we fight over everything. We have to get our own way because it's all about me. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Do you see this? Yeah, when we live like that, when we do those things, we're being spiritual babies. We're being spiritual babies. And Paul's point in these opening verses is that it is time to grow up. It's about time you grew up. You can't stay a baby forever. All right, so the rest of this chapter, it's Paul's attempt to help us grow up. That's what we've got here. 
And to that end, Paul introduces three metaphors. Three metaphors. The first metaphor is that of a field. In verse 5, Paul asks a question. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Paul and Apollos were the two most prominent leaders connected to the church in Corinth. These were the guys the Corinthians were turning into celebrities and forming teams around. And so in our context, this could be anyone ranging from your small group leader to one of our pastors to your favorite preacher to some historically significant Christian figure. It could be anyone who's in any position of ministry leadership. And look at what Paul says about those ministry leaders. What does he call them? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. Now in Corinth, where status was everything, to be a servant was nothing. And yet Paul calls Christian leaders servants. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 6. Paul writes, I planted, so I started the church. Apollos watered, so Apollos came along later and he poured water on the seed to help it along. But God gave the growth. And so ministry leaders here, we are mere farmhands. We're workers in a field. We're dudes who who do dirty, gritty, unglamorous work. Verse 7, Paul keeps bringing it down. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So now ministry leaders are nothing. They're not anything. So we, we start as servants, then farmhands, then nothing. So Paul is nothing. Apollos is nothing. Jason Lalonde is nothing. John McGill is nothing. Jamie Borchick is nothing. We are nothing. We are not anything. Verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. So ministry leaders are one. We all have the same rank. We all have the same purpose. We all work in the same field for the same boss, doing the same jobs. We are nothing and we are one. We're on the same level. And that raises a particularly important point for our church here in Rogers Park. Here at Park, we share the ministry load. And we do so on purpose. We don't have a singular head pastor who does everything. We have a plurality of elders and pastors and ministry leaders. We use different preachers. We have different leaders who play different roles within the congregation. And that is by design because as Paul makes clear here, and this is really his main point here, the church is not about the leaders. The church is not about the leaders. This church and the Big C Church, it does not exist so that I or Jason or John or Deli or Maddie or anyone else can get famous or grow a platform or build a following or become a celebrity. It is ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous when Christians treat pastors like celebrities. It looks stupid to the rest of the world, and it's super unhealthy for all those pastors. That's why so many of them are falling and and getting into all kinds of trouble right now. It's so nasty. It's just ridiculous. And so here's the point with the field. Don't make church about the leaders. Don't make church about the leaders. 
Don't elevate your favorite leaders too high. Don't put them on a pedestal. Don't form teams around them to fight against other teams. Don't do that. And leaders, Jamie, I'm speaking to myself here first. Leaders and aspiring leaders, uh, small group leaders, seminarians, campus ministers, leaders, don't make it about yourselves. Remember who you are in relation to God. You are nothing, and He is everything. Don't make it about you. So, the church is not about the leaders. And that leads us to our second metaphor. Pick up with me in verse 9. Paul says, You are God's field, and then he adds, God's building. And the next paragraph, and the next paragraph, Paul uses this idea of the church as God's building to talk about the responsibility that leaders have within the church. So leaders are nothing, but leaders have responsibility. And you'll notice as we read this paragraph that Paul several times says each one or anyone. So for Paul, every Christian is a ministry leader. You might not have a church or a congregation. You may not think of yourself in those terms. But look, you've got people in your life who currently do or who certainly could look to you for ministry leadership, for spiritual leadership. It might be your small group. It might be your crew of friends that you run with. It might be your siblings or your children or your coworkers or your neighbors. Like for some of those people in your life, you are the closest thing to Jesus that they're ever going to see. And so if you are a Christian, then you are a leader who needs to pay attention to what Paul is saying here. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So the church is a building and ministry leaders, that's us, you and me, we are the builders of that building. And then Paul gives an exhortation to us. He says, let each one take care how he builds upon that foundation. In the Greek, take care is an imperative. Paul is saying, watch, look, be careful, pay attention to this, take this seriously. And this is the key responsibility that we have. It is to take care how you build. Take care how you build. We have a responsibility to build well. And now we get to the building instructions, the how-to. Verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now this means that there is only one foundation for the church. And hear this. The church is not founded upon a person with a strong personality. The church is not founded upon a particular style of leadership. The church is not founded upon a system of theology or a program for social justice or a method of moral improvement. No, the church is founded upon Jesus Christ alone. He is the one and only foundation of the church and the foundation of the Christian life. And if Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection is not the foundation, then whatever you're looking at, Whatever you're a part of, it is not the church. It's something else altogether. If Jesus is not the foundation, then you are in the wrong building. There is one foundation. Let's keep going. Verse 12. 
Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, that's the day of Jesus' ultimate return, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What Paul is saying here is that one day, Jesus will return to this world. And on that day, when he returns, he will do so as a building inspector. He will come and he will take a good long look at what each of us has built upon his foundation. And on that day, he will see if our craftsmanship lives up to his standards. Now to be clear here, this text is not talking about heaven and hell. This passage also lends no support whatsoever to the Catholic idea of purgatory. That's not here. The worker, verse 15 tells us, will be saved. So this is a Christian, this is a a worker in God's building, someone who's laboring to build the church and and invest in others. This is a, a worker who is a Christian, will be saved. And what's being judged here is not the individual person, but that person's work in God's building project. And what's at stake is not reward or punishment, but reward or no reward at all. So this isn't about salvation, it is about responsibility. It is about the responsibility that we have to build well, and why it's important to build well. Now a major part of Chicago history is the Great Chicago Fire of 1871. You should see a photo of this up here, or a a painting of it up here. The Great Chicago Fire of 1871. That fire uh, ravaged the city. It killed 300 people, destroyed 17,000 structures, and left 100,000 people homeless. And a major reason why it was so destructive was because at the time, the city was built pretty much entirely out of wood. The houses were wood, the buildings were wood, even the sidewalks were wood. And so when a spark lit a fire, the fire burned everything in sight. And the fire destroyed everything because the city was not built well. The city had not been built well. It wasn't built to withstand the fire. But do you know what did survive this fire? There are a few survivors left around the city today. Like this. And this. And this. Which is probably the one most of us are familiar with. This is the water tower downtown. As you look at these images, what do these survivors all have in common? Yeah, they weren't built out of wood. They were built with better materials. And Paul's emphasis in this passage is on building with quality materials. Builders must build the church with materials that match the foundation. Christ is the foundation And so the materials with which we build need to be worthy of that foundation. They need to be in keeping with the character of that foundation. And there are, I think, on this point, two very practical applications for us as builders. First, the cross is key. The cross is key. 
Paul's whole argument in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians is that the cross is key not just for the establishment of the church, but also for the ongoing growth and transformation of God's people. The cross is not just the entry point into the faith. It is the shape of the Christian life as a whole. And so in your building, do not just lay Jesus down as the foundation and then forget about him. But keep him and keep the cross central in everything that you do. This is why every week here at Park, no matter what topic or text of the sermon, every week here at Park, you will hear the gospel message preached. Every week we will talk about Jesus and the cross. We never want to lose sight of the cross. The cross is the key to the entire Christian life. You never graduate from the cross. Okay? The cross is key. And second application. Count the cost. Count the cost. There are two classes of material that Paul lists out here. You've got the valuable, you've got gold and silver and costly stones. And you've got the cheap. You've got wood, hay, and straw. And as you build, you've got a choice about what kind of material you're going to use. Are you going to go cheap and easy? Or are you going to count the cost and pay the price and get the good stuff? See, building well is not easy. To be a faithful builder, it's going to cost you something. In keeping with the character of the foundation, it's going to require you to live with the character of Christ himself. To take up your own cross and to follow Jesus as you build into others. You can't short circuit that. You have to do it if you're going to be a faithful builder. And that's going to cost you time and energy and sleep and money and all sorts of other things. It's going to be costly. And you need to count that cost. And yet at the same time, you need to know that the cost is worth it. Paul talks about reward in verse 14. And Paul doesn't lay out what that reward entails, but he does commend it. He does tell us to pursue it. He encourages encourages us to go after it. And so maybe it's some giant trophy, like you get a huge trophy someday that you get to put on your mantle in heaven forever and ever. Like maybe it's that. Or, Or maybe it's simply God saying to you on that great day, well done, good and faithful servant. Like, I don't know what it is, and we don't know because Paul doesn't tell us here. But y'all, if God is offering a reward, like, I want that reward. If if, if that's available, that's something I want to go after. And I want to encourage you, too, to build well so that you get the reward, too. And that's the point of this whole building metaphor. You and I have a responsibility to build well. And so the question for us today is this. How is your building going? How is your building going? What kind of work are you doing in God's great project? Are you contributing? Are are you a part of it? Are you engaged in the work? Or are you on the sidelines sitting out not doing it at all? Are you keeping the cross central in everything that you're doing in your personal life and in, in your engagements with others? Are you keeping the cross central Are you counting the cost? Are you paying the price? Are you following Jesus through and through? How's your building project going? It's a question you need to wrestle with today. And as we do that kind of self-reflection, as one of your pastors today, I want to ask you on behalf of myself and all of us who serve here in formal leadership at Park, I just want to ask you to hold us accountable to building well. Like, if you see shoddy craftsmanship, 
If you see us slacking or building with something that's not worthy of Christ, bring that to our attention. Call us on it. We need to know that. Like we want to build well. And so you have that invitation to to call us out and to call us up and help us to build better. Okay? That brings us to the third metaphor. Verse 16. Here Paul asks another question. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Now in the Old Testament, God's spirit lived in Jerusalem in a physical temple. But pop quiz, where does God's spirit now live? Yeah, now he lives inside of every believer in Christ. And now we together, you don't have to go to a temple. We together, we are God's temple. All the yous here in these verses, they're plural. So Paul is saying that we collectively, we the church as a whole, we are the place where God now lives in the world. And that's why Paul gives the warning he does in verse 17. He says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the field and the building have now merged together into the temple God's people are now his temple. And and Paul just raised the stakes. And God raised the stakes on us. And he says, God doesn't want anyone messing with his temple. If you mess with his temple, if you mess with his people, if you mess with his church, God's going to mess with you. Like God's not playing around with his church. God is passionate about his people. He protects his people. He protects his building projects. He protects his church like a mama bear protects her cubs. Like he's serious about this thing. He's not playing around with it. And this warning is here in order to convey the seriousness of this issue. Like the stuff that you see in this passage, like God doesn't want anyone forming teams over your favorite leaders and fighting in the parking lot. God doesn't want any one farmhand, any pastor, preacher, ministry leader, any individual Christian to be elevated up above all the others at the expense of the others. He doesn't play like that. He doesn't want anyone trying to build a church on a foundation other than Christ. He doesn't want workers building with shoddy materials in a haphazard way. He's not messing around with this. He doesn't want anyone to remain a spiritual infant when you should be grown up. Like this is serious to him. He cares about this. God is intent on seeing that his field thrives, that his building grows, that his temple stands. So don't mess around with the church. Don't play with church. And that brings us to the final paragraph here in our text, the home stretch. Paul continues, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written in Job chapter 5 verse 13, he, God, catches the wise in their craftiness. And again in Psalm 94 verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So here Paul links back to earlier in the letter where he expounded upon the wisdom of the world and the folly of the cross. You know, we think we're wise sometimes in the things we do. Really, what we're doing is we're messing around with the church. We're playing around with the church. And Paul's saying here, like, don't don't do that. Like, God knows. God knows what's going on. He knows that game. And God, in his great building project, what he does is he inverts the wisdom of the world. He turns things upside down and he flips them right side up. Verse 21 So let no one, let no one boast in men. 
This is the main problem in the church in Corinth. They're making it all about their leaders and all about themselves. And Paul says, no, it's not all about you. It's not all about me. That's not what it's all about. Don't boast in people. This isn't about that. He continues, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or any other human leader. The church doesn't belong to its leaders. It's not about the leaders. The leaders belong to the church, actually, to serve the church. But it's not about the leaders. He continues, all things are yours, the world or life or death or the present or the future. His point is that our great God has provided everything that you need, both now and forever, for the work that he's called you to do, for the things that he's called you to be. All things are yours. And here's the final verse, verse 23. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. And this is where this whole chapter comes together. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not belong to your leaders. You do not belong to this world. You do not belong to the culture. You do not belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus Christ. And though Jesus is and always has been equal to God the Father, and though he is and always has been fully God from eternity past, some two millennia ago, he stepped out of heaven and he stepped into history to personally participate in God's building project. Jesus put on human flesh and he was born as an infant. Jesus became fully human and yet he was never merely human. He was the perfect God-man. And he spent his life faithfully planting gospel seeds and building up God's people. He was the best farmer. He was the best builder. And then like those gospel seeds he had scattered, he himself went down into the ground and he died to bring about new life. In the end, he was nailed to a cross of wood where he laid down his life to become the foundation for God's great building. He died on that cross and it looked like folly. It looked utterly foolish. Until he rose from the grave and he proved that it was the greatest power the world has ever seen. And because he did, now you and I can actually become God's temple. Through Jesus, we can be forgiven for all of our folly and all of our failure. Through Jesus, we can receive God's spirit. We can, through Jesus, we can live in real relationship with God the Father now and forever. And church family, that is the point of church. That is why we are here today. This is God's field. This is God's building. We are God's temple. It is not all about us. It is all about him. That's the point. I'll finish with this. This is the Duomo in Florence, Italy. It's maybe my favorite building in the world. And as you can see, this thing is both enormous and gorgeous. It's over 500 feet long and over a football field tall. And it is literally shaped like a cross. This thing is awesome. It's really incredible. If you get a chance to go see it, it's amazing. You walk around a corner and you, it's, it just blows your mind. It's amazing. And when I think about what God wants to build in us, in our lives, in our church, in the church, I think about this. And here's the thing about this building. This thing was started in the year 1296. And it wasn't finished until the year 1436. 140 years later. 
You see, it takes a long time to build something great. It takes a long time to build something great. And you know, God wants to build something great in your life and in the church. And for that to happen, you got to be committed for the long haul. Maturity takes time. Growth takes time. And in a world where it's all about me, learning to live a life that's all about God, it takes time. And so here's my final encouragement to you today. Stick with it. Stick with it. Stick with God. Stick with us. And together, let's watch as God builds something great out of us. Because it's all about him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you for this church. Thank you for the church. And I thank you for uh, Jesus through whom church is possible. This is all about you, God. And we confess the many ways that we tend to make it all about us. We're all prone to that. But you have done a great work. You have built something incredible in the world. And I pray that in our lives and in our church, our, our, small, uh, our small little expression of your broader global body, I pray that you would build something great here. Would you shape us? Would our lives take the shape of the cross? Would our lives take the shape of Jesus? And would we build with really quality materials that we would reflect the glory of who you are? You are a great God. We praise you today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.